This morning's presentation, Empowered But Powerless, is a little bit of uh, inspiration. So what I try to do when I go into a church is inspire first before we go into the training. And after we, we inspire them, then that's when, of course, hopefully they're receptive for the training. And um, these are some of the flyers that we've used. This is actually uh, a flyer that we use. We've done everything. We've done a, a, a Bible. We've done beasts. We've done uh, something simple. We've done uh, pretty much anything. This was the, the latest and greatest. We did this one just a few months ago. Uh, this one was called Revealing Revelation, the Dragon, the Beast, and the False Prophet. Let me tell you a little bit of what I found about advertising. When I have advertised and it's been just the cross, it hasn't been as effective as something with a scary beast. Now, we may look at that and like, oh, who would come to that? That's some scary beast. People are searching for answers. And they specifically don't know how to answer questions regarding the book of Daniel and Revelation. And so when we have tried a cross, when we've tried a Bible, when we've tried does God exist, we've found that many people are saying, oh wow, just another Bible seminar. But when we concentrate on our doctrines, and we concentrate on what, on what God has given us, and that's the spirit of prophecy, and the end time movements, and eschatology, and what happens in Daniel and Revelation, there's a curiosity factor in the community, and people are receptive, and they come in wanting to know what happens. What is the book of Revelation talking about? Another thing that I found is um, mailers have not been very effective, at least in many of the series that we've done. I, what I mean by that is dollar for dollar. Yes, we've spent $10,000 and three people came, you know, and, uh, but we've found that mailers have not been very effective. One of the things that I've done instead is I've done a free iPad giveaway, and, and what I do is I put all my sermons, materials, and everything on there. You can get an iPad mini for about $300, and... I found that if you give one of these away to the person who invites the most people, so you get some, and, and I tell church members, you can win that too. In fact, I give it to a church member because I find that the best people who come are people who they have invited. And so if a church member brings seven people, that's better than me getting 20 people from an, a mailer. They don't know anyone. They don't know anything. But here, you have brought seven of your friends or seven of your family members, they already know you. And their likelihood of making a decision and staying in the church are so much higher because they know you. And so what I've done is I've given a free iPad, and that has been effective. Usually I've had people bring 20 people, 15 people, 13 people. Uh, so that for me has been uh, very effective. Um, the last one uh, series that we did, we were in Hawaii. And I have never had this, but this is fascinating. Guess who won the iPad? It was a Sunday church pastor. He came because one of my Bible workers knocked on his door, on one of his church members' door. She did a Bible study with a church member. The church member loved it, and she said, you need to come to our Wednesday night prayer meeting. She came and did the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And the Sunday pastor said, wow, this is phenomenal. This is amazing. And so she then said, if you like this, you're going to love this. And so she told him about this, uh, this seminar. Long story short, Pastor Jerry, who I'm still in touch with, who still uh, we keep in touch with, he invited me to preach Sunday morning at his church. And I, I preached on Sunday morning. And he then told everyone, he said, I am going to bus 
any church member who wants to go. And he had free transportation to all his church members to come to an Adventist church and to learn Adventist truths. He sat through the state of the dead, Sabbath, everything. On the decision cards, he said yes to many of these things. And so his name's Pastor Jerry. In August, Candace and I go back there, and we're gonna, we already have an invitation to preach at his church again. So if you remember Pastor Jerry, we, um, he's someone who I have the utmost respect for. Uh, a, a typical first night presentation, what, I, what I've done is something to Does God Exist? And uh, the last one I called it, of course, everyone is into the whole comic book series and, you know, Superman and Spider-Man and, and uh, all of this stuff is making a run. And so my opening night message was superhero or super hoax. And what we did is we gave reasons for the existence of God and we did it from science. And what we try to do is also make as you can see, the slides really, and the pictures and the graphics, up to date. We would try to really modernize everything. We also told them about what the Bible teaches and how they can trust the Bible. And um, we talked to them about Jesus and how they can believe in Jesus. And so we try to approach our evangelistic series from a modern point of view, in, in addition to bringing in all of the prophecies as well. I, I like to talk about relationships in my evangelistic series. Uh, talk about the truth about Satan and the devil, and of course, get into the great controversy and talk about the war between good and evil. And we invite them to come and see, come to the evangelistic series. We invite them to bring friends. And once we get them to this point of curiosity, we then go through and say, in order for us to be successful, in evangelism, the, the one important element, of course, is faith. And what I tell the church members is, if we don't believe that this is going to happen, it's not going to happen. And so I start off with how to, how to neuter the power of God. And so this is what we're going to start with today. Let's go in our Bibles to Matthew 10, verse 1. How to neuter the power of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. As we continue on in this message, empowered but powerless. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. I like the, the, the Gospel of Matthew because he wrote it in a, in a topical format. And you can follow his accountant mind and, and really see the, the bullet points of what he's trying to get across. Matthew 10, verse 1. The Bible says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them, what everyone? Power. So this is where we're getting the word empowered but powerless. So in Matthew 10, verse 1, to the 12 disciples, and in Luke chapter 10, we see God gives power. He gives power to the 12 disciples, and specifically, there's power to do something. He gives power against unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Let me start off with this illustration. How many of you in this room have kids? Children. Okay, so you have children. I'm guessing they're probably older now or in their. Okay, okay. Okay, okay, awesome. Um, I remember when I was 15 and a half, 16, and I just got my driver's license. And my mom would give me the keys to the car. But with the keys, obviously, with, with the, keys, the keys to the car comes power, there was specific instruction. 
here's the keys to the car. I want you to go to the store and buy milk, buy water, right? Here's $20. It's $20. Go to the grocery store. Here's the checklist of things that I want you to buy. And I want you to be back, and we need this for tonight's dinner, tonight's supper. You've empowered someone, but when you empower someone, there's also specific what? Instructions, right? When God empowers you, or when he empowers the church, there are specific instructions on what to do with that power. In Matthew 10, when God says, okay, here you go, I'm giving you power, but what if the disciples said, okay, I have power, I'm going to go ahead and try to go fishing and catch thousands of fish. Would that power work? The answer is no, because God gave power to be used for a specific purpose. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he empowers his disciples to cast out unclean spirits, to heal manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, God has given them specific power, and we know what happens. They come back happy, right? Do you guys remember the story? They come back and they say, wow, even the demons are subject to us. We've never had this before. Now, I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 in verse 14 through 20 is probably one of the most embarrassing moments in Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 17. Now, God has given them power to do what again? You guys remember? Cast demons, right? And to heal. That's the specific power that they have been given. In Matthew chapter 17, it's the story of the transfiguration. Jesus goes uh, up, and that's, of course, with uh, Peter, James, and John. He takes the three of them up to the mount, and then we see Elijah, we see Moses. They come down on the mount. Now, at this time, Jesus has taken three of the disciples, so let's do some math. How many disciples are left? Not at the transfiguration, back at base camp. Nine, right? Nine, uh, nine disciples, right? Nine disciples are left there to kind of just, if you want to keep the ministry running. Jesus is gone. Notice what happens in Matthew chapter 17. This has got to be probably one of the more embarrassing moments in Jesus' ministry. Verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falls into the fire, and oftentimes into the water. Verse 15, a man comes to Jesus because his son is what? Possessed. Possessed by a demon. Now, what power were the disciples given? Do you guys remember? To cast out demons. Jesus is gone with his disciples. There are nine of them who have been empowered with this very power to cast out demons. Notice what it says in verse 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not what? Wow. The disciples have been given this special power to cure, to cast out demons. They've been empowered to cast out demons, but in Matthew 17, you know, the, the power just doesn't go away. God doesn't give you power in Matthew 10, then it expired, right? There's no expiration date on the power of God. So what happened here? Verse 17, how do you neuter the power of God? Matthew 17 tells us how. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, 
How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him here to me. What does Jesus call them? Oh, faithless. So even though God empowers us specifically with a specific purpose, how can we neuter that power? How can we rid ourselves of that power? Lack of faith, right? Now, skip down to verse 20, and Jesus says it again. Because of your unbelief. So even though God gives you specific power, if you have unbelief, that power is neutered. It's neutralized. It's gone. Now, I want you to keep this in mind, because we're going to get to, at the very end, what power has God given you and me? Because this was the present truth, the present power that God gave them. I want you all to cast demons out. I want you all to heal people. Jesus leaves. The disciples have this lunatic that comes up to them, this demon-possessed young man, and they could not cast him out. And the reason why was unbelief. Now, there's something interesting I do want to touch on. Jesus says to them in verse 20, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. That has always plagued me about this whole having faith like a mustard seed, and you can move mountains. I'll give you a little bit of background about myself. I have a construction background. I was a project manager. And when we would build homes, the most important part of building a home is what? Foundations, right? Concrete slabs, foundation. Does anyone know what can move that foundation? Right there. The tr- a tree root. Have any of you ever had a driveway and it's popped up? Have the, do you remember, has that ever happened? And you've wondered, what, what happened to my, my concrete slab? And it's, it's popped up. And it, it, what has happened is a tree branch, you had a small tree, and the branches underneath has pushed the concrete up. When Jesus says, have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, and I love doing this, I, I didn't have a, have a chance to do this, but on Amazon.com, you can buy actually a bunch of mustard seed. It's actually pretty cool. And when you, I, I, what I would do is sometimes I'd pour it out to, to people who'd, who'd attend some of my seminars, and when you hold this thing, I mean, this thing is tiny. I mean, this thing is just, you, you can't believe what it could actually become. And I show a picture of what a mustard tree really is, how big and how grand it is. But when Jesus says, have faith as a mustard, uh, if you have faith like the the seed of a mustard, uh, if you have faith like a mustard seed, if you don't plant that mustard seed, it will never grow to be that mustard tree. And if you don't exercise your faith, you will never grow. What I realize about that parable or that phrase when Jesus said, if you have faith, like the grain of a mustard seed, he wants you to plant it and he wants your faith to grow. And if your faith is not growing, it's dying. If you're not going forward in your Christian walk, you're dying. And when your faith grows, it becomes like a tree. You know, a tree, if placed properly, can actually move a mountain, can move a hill. Its roots can take, take a hold and it can actually shift things. It can move it. And what I realized what Jesus was saying is your faith must grow like that mustard seed. And if it is planted and if it grows, you can do the impossible. You can move concrete. You can move mountains. 
But if we never plant our faith, if we never exercise our faith, if we never allow it to grow, we can't do anything. The other thing about faith is this. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, right? Maybe for you today, faith was you coming to this conference. I've never been to a conference like this. I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm a new Adventist, etc. For some people, it's faith. For some other people, faith for them for the first time is knocking on that door and experiencing rejection. That's faith. Now, if you have done those things repeatedly, if you've knocked on a thousand doors, if you've been a canvasser for 10, 10 years, if you have gone to a bunch of these seminars, if you've gone to a bunch of mission trips, you understand that's not faith anymore, right? You understand that you going on a Maranatha mission trip for your hundredth time is not faith. You know what the drill is like. You know what's going to happen. You know what the bathroom accommodations are like. You know everything about those trips now. There is no surprises. You've done it. Faith is continually doing the things that you've never done. If you've done an evangelistic series, maybe for you, I've never done that before, and by faith we did it. And we did it. We learned a lot of things. You doing it next year is not faith anymore. You have now seen it. You have now gone through it. God wants to continually test and try us and to put us in a position where we have to uh, believe even though we've never seen the end result. We've never seen it come to pass. Does that make sense? And for me, that was monumental to understand what faith is because I thought, oh, faith for me is let's do an evangelistic series every year. Michael, (laughs) your first one was 2006. It's not faith anymore. It's almost automatic, almost routine. You know what to do. You know how to prepare. You know what to say. So what is God pushing each of you to do that's different, that you've never done? Because for God, faith is doing the impossible. That's what he wants you to do, walking on water when you've never done that before. That's what God wants you to do, healing The sick, even though you've never done that before. In Matthew 17, they've already cast out demons. They need more faith. Their faith needed to grow. It can't just stay in the same place. Let's go in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. My wife and I travel 200 days out of the year. And as I told you yesterday, I was born and raised in Loma Linda. That's Loma Linda Market, Loma Linda University, Loma Linda Academy. That's where I graduated. There is something familiar, something comforting about coming home. You guys know what I'm talking about. Any of you who ever, if you've born in, been born and raised in a certain area, wherever that is, and you've been gone for a long time. And it's funny because I used to despise where I grew up, and I used to say, I can't wait to leave this small city. Now that I do city evangelism, I can't wait to go back to little Loma Linda and be able to know that I'll have a, 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 you know, every aisle stocked with Big Franks and Veggie Links wherever I go. You know, it's just comforting to know that I'm I'm home, I'm in an environment that's friendly. In Matthew chapter 13, we see seven parables about the kingdom of God, and Jesus in verse 53 is now coming home. He has been on the road, and he's coming home. 
And could you imagine what Jesus is feeling to be able to go home, to be able to preach in your home church, to be able to experience mom's home cooking? In Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, it says, And it came to pass that when he had finished these parables, he departed thence. Verse 54, And when he was come into his own what? Country. So he's coming now to his own home. He's coming to Galilee. He taught them in their synagogue. In other words, he's come to his home church. Insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, we have to remember, Jesus has been gone for some time now. He has been going all around. He's been preaching. He's been healing. And in, finally, in verse 54, he's coming home. And could you imagine what the feelings that, that he's feeling, the emotions of, oh, I can't wait to go home. I remember seeing that leper for, 50, uh, for 20 years growing up. I remember seeing that leper at the corner. I remember seeing, I remember seeing that, that woman who, who was paralyzed. I remember seeing the blind man. I remember all of these people, and I'm coming back, and I can heal them. That's what Jesus is thinking here. Verse 55 he goes to church, he goes to Sabbath school, he, pre, he, he, he shares some things in Sabbath school, and they're astonished. Where is this man coming from? And finally someone recognizes him. Is not this the carpenter's son? That's not a, um, that's a put down, by the way. This is not, oh, hey, he's the carpenter's son. This is a put down. Carpenters were not the most respected professions. And usually if you were a carpenter, it means you weren't smart enough to be part of the elite. Every, every father, every family, for them, being a Pharisee, a Sadducee, being in the ministry was the highest calling. That was the most respected position, far more than being a lawyer, more than being a doctor, being a Pharisee, being a Sadducee. That was what you wanted to be. If you said, uh, I'm, gonna be going, I'm going to the school of the rabbis, y you were smart. You're a straight-A kid, 4.5 GPA, perfect SAT score, etc. If you were not smart enough to make it to the school of the rabbis, or if you didn't have enough money, or if you're not part of the social elite, you went back and you were part of your father's trade. And that's when you became a locksmith, a fisherman, a carpenter. So... Jesus did not make it into the elite for whatever reason. He didn't make it into the Pharisaical school, which was God's will and God's plan. And so he goes back to be a carpenter. And so in verse 55, when someone says, is not this the carpenter's son? In other words, God, everyone, why are you astonished by his doctrine? He didn't go to the seminary. He's a carpenter's son. That's the context. Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? Verse 57, this part is heartbreaking. They were what? So they go from being astonished at his doctrine to being what? Offended. All because of his educational background. All because of he's not part of the social elite, right? And then it says this, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and his own house. Verse 58 is heartbreaking. And he did not many mighty works because of their 
how do you neuter the power of God? Unbelief. Jesus is coming to his hometown wanting to heal many people. You look at the gospel account in Luke, and he talks about how he, was a, he wants to heal specific people. He wants to do some miracles. And Luke says it even better. He says, Jesus was not able to do but just a few miracles because of their unbelief. In other words, he came with grand plans of doing a big medical missionary outreach. He wanted to do a big health expo. And he didn't want to just take blood pressure checks. He wanted to heal people. But his missionary trip to his hometown was cut short because of their unbelief. You know, Ellen White says this about Voltaire, French philosopher who didn't believe in God or the Bible. Uh, greatest scoffers, one of the greatest scoffers. Um, it was interesting because Voltaire was given a book that educated him, that planted the seed of doubt. If you look at the story of Voltaire, it's because of a book that someone gave him. When Voltaire was five years old, he committed to memory an infidel poem. And the pernicious influence, be, uh, influence was never effaced from his mind. He became one of Satan's most successful agents to lead men away from God. Thousands will rise up in judgment and charge the ruin of their souls upon the infidel, infidel's unbeliever, Voltaire. Ellen White calls Voltaire out by name, saying many are going to be lost. Many are going to be ruined because of this French philosopher. And listen to what he says before he died. <laughs> I wish I'd never been born. If you don't believe in God, if you don't have faith in him, at the end of the day, when you are at your deathbed, what hope do you have to look for? You have nothing. And we see what he did, the greatest thing he did against the cause of God was plant seeds of unbelief, of doubt in many people's minds. Let's go in our Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 3 as we continue on with this idea, with this thought of unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3 In verse 12, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Paul is going through the history of the Israelites, the history of the Jews. And in Hebrews chapter 3, in verse 12, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of what? Unbelief. Again, Paul is reminding us, warning us, against unbelief. He goes on to say, or an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And then we see verse 19. Why did the children not enter the promised land the first time? Why is it in the very beginning? We, we know what happened. God quickly got rid of all the Egyptians. All it took was one miracle at the Red Sea. Their enemies are gone. God had it in his plan for them to go from Egypt to Canaan within 40 days, very quickly. You look at the path, you look at the route, 40 days was his plan. But of course, we know the story, they ended up taking over 40 years. Why is it that they took 40 years instead of 40 days? Verse 19 says, so we see that they could not enter in because of what, everyone? Unbelief. Unbelief. How to neuter the power of God? Unbelief. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm sick and tired of this world. Broke my heart going to Africa. I went to Zimbabwe, was preaching an evangelistic series there. 
50% of the, the kids five years and younger has the HIV virus or AIDS. You think God is waiting for another innocent child to be infected with AIDS? Do you think that God is waiting for another sad story of uh, hearing about his, his beautiful children being sold into sex slaves? Do you think God wants to hear another story of the evening news about an you know, horrific murder scene that happened at another college campus or elementary. God doesn't want to see any of these things anymore. The reason why you and I are still here is because of unbelief. Why are we so powerless? Let's go in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. We have God's original church that he set up, his children of Israel, the original congregation where God dwelt with them. We know that he, the first time that he had a sanctuary in Exodus 25, let me let them make a sanctuary so I can dwell with them. In Exodus chapter 9 verse 13 through 16, I love seeing this because the way that God works is he works using men as his... Uh, as his force. He uses them as, uh, I love what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we are earthen vessels. We're clay pots. God uses us, us earthen vessels, and he uses us to witness to others. And the reason why I believe that God does this is because evangelism is salvific towards us. The, the people who are saving souls are the people who are being saved and sanctified. Exodus chapter 9 verse 13 God could have easily changed Pharaoh's heart without Moses. But in verse 13, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Verse 14, For I will at this time, and all my people, and all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon my servants, and upon your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 15, For now I will stretch out my hand, that I will smite you and your people with pestilence, and you shall be cut off from the earth. And finally, verse 16. And in this very deed, for this cause, have I raised you up. So God has raised Moses up for this very mission. To show in thee, what? My power. I submit to you today that the reason why God has called you to do evangelism is he wants to do exactly that. He wants to show in you His power. In other words, God will not baptize 5,000 people, 20,000 people without you. Just like God didn't do the plagues, even though He could have, without Moses. God could have easily said, okay, I'm going to start working and there are going to be 10 plagues. And after the 10 plagues, Pharaoh is going to be fed up and going to say, okay, I'm going to let the Israelites go. That's not how it worked. God calls Moses, and Moses gave a plethora of excuses. You remember all the excuses? I'm not good enough. I don't have a good uh, tongue. Uh, why are you calling me? I've been out of the mission for many years. I've been in this wilderness. Moses has every excuse you can think of, and God meets every single objection, and he says to Moses, I want you to go. Why? Exodus 9, verse 16, it says, I want to show in thee my power. So God's purpose is he wants to manifest his power 
through you. And if you think about it, that's a high and holy privilege. That God is not going to show his power without you. He needs you in that sense. He, in order for him to show his power, he uses human agencies to show his power. Go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we have to wrap this session up real soon. Acts chapter 1, 1 through 4. So here we see the first church in Exodus, the very first group of people, his first congregation where he has a sanctuary. Then we see the apostolic church in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus leaves. In Acts chapter 1, we see this theme again. Let's go ahead and start in verse 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach. Verse 2, unto the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So God gave what before he left? He gave commandments. He gave specific instructions. Verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Finally, verse 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the, of the Father, which saith he, You have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with what, everyone? So God says to the apostolic church, wait for me and I will give you a very specific power. I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit, right? He also gives them commands. Now, you, you of course, know this very well. If you are not going to see someone again, the last words you share with them are very important. You look at someone on their deathbed. The very last words that they say to their loved ones, to their daughter, to their son, to their wife, are very important. It's not just, hey dude, how's it going, right? It's very important words. If your son is about to leave for college, your daughter's about to leave for college, and it's that goodbye, the last words you share are important words. Jesus is about to leave the disciples, and he shares the most important words. Go to Matthew 28 now, verse 18. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and this is now getting to be, this is now our concluding thought. So if you remember Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus gave the disciples power. Do you remember that? And with that power, there's a specific purpose. What was that purpose for? Cast out demons and to heal, right? Matthew chapter 28, you see this again. Verse 18. Jesus came and spoke unto this, them, saying this. What is the next word, everyone? It doesn't say some. It doesn't say a little. It says all. So in, in, in the, originally when we read Matthew 10, it just said, I'm going to give them power. A preview. And the small dose of power I'm going to give them is going to be enough to cast out demons and to heal. He is now leaving. And he says, before I leave, I'm going to give you a set of commandments, and I'm going to give you the greatest power, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, all. All what? All power. All power. Now think about that. That same power that spoke the world into existence. 
that same power that was able to create something out of nothing. God is saying all of that power. What's he going to do with it? Let's keep reading. All power. Now, this is powerful. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So all the power that you can think of in earth, in heaven, everywhere, every single power, every ounce that we have, I am giving to you. Now, remember what we talked about. When you give someone power, you also give them what? Instructions. In other words, the power that I'm giving you must be used for a specific purpose, right? It has to be used for a specific purpose. So God is saying here, I'm going to give you all the power on earth and in heaven, but it must be used for a specific purpose. What is it to be used for? Verse 19. Go ye therefore and do what? It doesn't say to build a bunch of Adventist academies and big institutions. And I'm not against that. I'm just saying that is not the primary existence of it. It says, teach all nations, baptizing them. It doesn't say to build great congregations or big institutions of learning either. It says to teach all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, if these institutions are fulfilling this commission, Praise God. If our churches are fulfilling this commission, praise God. If our educational institutions, if our hospitals, all of that are following this, then it's used for a specific purpose. But do you want to know why the Adventist church is empowered but powerless? God has given all power in heaven and earth for a specific purpose, and we're stagnant. We're not using the power... For a specific purpose. And we saw what happens when we have unbelief. We saw what happens when you don't use the power in the right way that it was supposed to be used. And that's why we're dead. How is it that I go to a church and they've never had an evangelistic series in all of their existence? How is it that many people, they don't know the very basics of how to witness to people? How is it that some people have never won a single person to God? Now, I don't say we do this, and this is David Asherick's words, not mine, but he said, what would happen if, if we had a, you have to win one soul to God every year in order for you to renew your membership to the Adventist church? What would it look like? I'm not seeing Matthew 28, 18 through 20 as optional. I'm seeing it as a requirement. Amen. Quick story. And I have to close. There were a couple of young girls this past year who wanted to go to Souls West. Two of them, to be exact. And they were Millennium Gate Scholars. You know what that is? That is the highest scholarship awarded in this nation. It's the Bill Gates Scholarship. It's not only a full ride to the school of your choice, in this young girl's case, it was Yale. The other one, she chose Andrews. But it was, they pay you to go to school. They pay for your room, your board, your books, and an extra stipend on top of that. And these two young girls, they came up to me. Both of them, didn't, they don't know each other. Different place, 
thousands of miles apart. And they went up to me and they said, Michael, I'd, I'd really like to go to Souls West. I said, okay, well, praise God. But I have a little bit of a problem. I'm a Gates scholar and I have a scholarship and it needs to be used. And, and I would love to go back to my, I'd love to get training and go back to my school and be able to be a light, be able to be a, a witness for God. You know, they spent the summer canvassing and colporting. And they said, I would love to learn more of this so that I can be a light. I can be a beacon of light at my college campus. And I said, praise God. But here's the thing. Yale, and, uh, and it didn't even have to do with the school. It has to do with, uh, it's not so much the school, it's, it's, it's uh, the Gates Scholarship. There are, um, I would like to defer the scholarship. I said, okay, how can I help? They said, this is how you can help. We have seen that our Mormons, our Mormon classmates, our Mormon friends, they have deferred their scholarship for two years because it's mandatory that they have to serve. At 18 years old, I don't know if you guys know this or not, it's mandatory. If you are a young man at 18 years old, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter if you are the president's kid, doesn't matter if you are... Um, Who's the last presidential candidate? Romney's kid. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if you're a Mormon, you're Mitt Romney's kid, you're a Mormon, you're 18, you have to go for two years and serve in Timbuktu. If you're a girl, 20 years old or 19. These two girls came up to me and they said, if you can show, if you can prove, if you can write a letter that evangelism, a, a life of witnessing that that this uh, missionary experience, that it's mandatory, it's mandated by the Adventist church. If you can show that, I can get my scholarships deferred. I called up the union. I called the vice president of the Pacific Union Conference, and we both tried our best to construct a letter. And the best we could come up with was, according to our 28 fundamentals, we should live a lifestyle of active witnessing. And because of that, it would help the young ladies to go to a two-year institution to help them. That's all I could do. That was the most I could do without lying. And I got rejected. I was so upset. Here we are, called by God to live a lifestyle of evangelism. And what are we doing? Getting, going to nice college, getting a good job, buying a house, getting married. In closing, there's a book I want you to read if you have a chance. It's called Radical. It has really changed my, my viewpoint. This book is called Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream by David Platt. Um, David Platt was asked to lead one of the biggest Sunday churches in Alabama, in the South. And as he was about to lead this 10,000 member mega church, he said, where in the Bible is that? And he said, we desperately need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical. He goes on to say, my biggest fear even now is that I will hear Jesus' words and walk away, content to settle for less than radical obedience to him. Radical obedience means living a life that is different. 
a life that is not status quo, a life that is not the American dream. The American dreams is so at odds with the lifestyle of what God says, take up your cross and follow me. And he says something so, so profound in his book. He says, not even martyrdom is, should be considered exceptional. In other words, if you get killed for the gospel, that's not exceptional because our example did that. In other words, that's the, requi- that's the prerequisite. If you want to go to college, the prerequisite, graduate high school, take the SATs or SATs, ACTs, get a minimum GPA. In other words, if you go into college and you have a 2.5 GPA, there's nothing ex- exceptional. You got the, the minimum requirements. And he says, David Platt says in his book, if, and we make a big deal, oh, the, these missionaries in, in Timbuktu or the Congo, they got, they got persecuted, they were martyred. And, and we look at these great martyrs and we look at uh, the great controversy and we read the story of Luther and you look at the story of Huss and Jerome and we think, wow, what exceptional men of faith. That's the, the minimum. If Christ is the one who says, okay, this is what I did. This is my example. Go and follow me. In other words, if you die for your faith, that's the minimum. I hope listening through this, that this has shifted or at least inspired you to think big and to think, what am I doing with my life? Am I going to be like everyone else? I like to close with this story. The Rose Parade takes place every New Year's Day. January 1, Pasadena, California. And every year, I don't know if you know how the Rose Parade works, but what's underneath is basically like a flat car. It has a motor, has an engine, it's a transmission, has wheels. So it's just like a car. Think of this as a flatbed truck or a car. And what they do is they are in the Rose Parade, the Adventist Church has had a, a float. I don't know if you know that. But um, they put flowers. Your float has to be made 100% of plants. Flowers and seeds, and you can use those things. Well, this specific year, if you've been there, there was a float that stopped. And they're trying to figure out what happened. So they sent out the technical, mechanical, and the mechanics, and the mechanics came, and they checked the engine was fine. Transmission was fine. Everything was fine, but this thing just stopped. They finally, after checking everything except one thing, they, they finally said, let's check the gas tank. And they looked in the gas tank, and guess what happened? Ran out of gas. Now, here's the most ironic thing. Does anyone want to guess what float it was? It was the gas company. (laughs) You have all the gas in the world, but you ran out of gas. And I feel like that's us at times. God has given us all power, but we're running on empty. We are not using the power that God has given us to be a light. My appeal for you as we close is that you will live a lifestyle of evangelism. That we will understand that it is mandatory. It's a commandment. And it saves our souls in the process.
go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what we're able to learn this morning. I thank you for the attentive audience that I had. I thank you, Father, that you were able to draw our attention to you. And as we listen and we sit through this presentation, I pray that we would that we would not neuter the power of the gospel. That we would not make the same mistake that the children of Israel did. Where it says they entered not because of unbelief. Here we are at the cusp of, of eternity. We're at the very edges of the Jordan River. And Lord, forgive us for our Laodicean laziness. Forgive us for being lukewarm. Forgive us for making evangelism as an afternoon activity and not a lifestyle. My hope and prayer is that we can collectively as a group leave this place with motivation, with courage, with training, and most importantly with anointing of your Holy Spirit to do great things for you. I pray that someone in this room changes the course of history so that you can come. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.